You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, thank you for gathering us together uh, this Lord's Day to worship you, to be able to celebrate Holy Communion. And now to look at the life of Abraham together. Please lead us by your spirit into your word. And may our lives be shaped and transformed by that word. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, before you have, you have two outlines. Uh, the one that begins Father Abraham, that has more dense wording on it, and is covered on front and back, was my original outline, the one I was going to present to you uh, today. But the more I worked on Genesis this week, the more, uh, uh, what's the word for it? Uh, the more I wanted to understand the story of Abraham in a different way. I have preached on Abraham before, and the whole idea of this series comes from what I call the Stay in the Story series in which I preached from Genesis to Malachi. And I did five sermons in Genesis. And I did one sermon on Abraham, from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25. In that sermon, I drew attention to Genesis 12, the call of Abraham, because that, I think, is a unique starting point. And I'll explain in a few moments why I think that is. And then Genesis 22 and the offering up of Isaac is, of course, the pivotal crisis and test for Abraham, in which he is willing to sacrifice his one and only son because God commanded him to do it. And, uh, great, pick up one of each. And uh, so Genesis 12, Genesis uh, 22, and then I concluded with, in my sermon on that, Abraham's call, Abraham's test, and God's ultimate provision in his one and only son. And how Genesis 22, Abraham's almost sacrifice, led to the father's altogether sacrifice of the son. Well, I came into this week and having read through, uh, four days I read from Genesis 12 to 25, just trying to think through the story and I was trying to understand why incident after incident after incident, what was the, the form? What was the shape? You know, many of us believe that Moses is the one who is ultimately the one who signed off on Genesis and, uh, and is the author uh, or the editor of Genesis. And that description of God at work in Abraham's life I was just trying to tally up the incidents, and that's what led to the second outline. And so you can put that first outline aside, and uh, you can take the, this outline. I've got an extra one here, and then this is it, so we have a perfect attendance. Um, all 15. Uh, 
So let's look at this first outline, Abraham and Sarah. At the start, you notice that their names mean something. Abram, father exalted. Abraham, father of many. Sarah, princess. And then we're not quite so sure that Sarah means queen, but it would certainly fit. These Genesis account with Abraham begins with a demand a demanding command and a sevenfold promise. So if you want to look in your Bibles to Genesis 12, that's where I'm going to begin. And uh, we'll kind of move somewhat rapidly uh, as we look at Abraham's life. Remember, uh, you know, we preach small sections of Scripture. That's kind of how we do it. But I don't think that the Bible was written so much for our preaching in small sections, but more in a flow of understanding. So you can picture the Hebrew people, in a way, sitting around a table, sitting in a circle, telling the story. And in that telling of the story, God's great salvation history story, that drama of redemption, that's how we ought to hear the story more often. So I, 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 that's one of the reasons for taking such a large section, Genesis 12 through 25. The Lord said to Abram, verse 1 of chapter 12, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. Well, you note how comprehensive the going is. He's leaving his country, his people, his family, his land, and he's going. That's the demanding command, but following that demanding command is a sevenfold promise. It's listed there on your outline. Number one, I will make you into a great nation. Number two, I will bless you. Number three, I will make your name great. Number four, and you will be a blessing. Number five, I will bless those who bless you. Number six, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Number seven, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12 parallels Genesis 1. Just as God, out of the formlessness, out of the darkness, formed the cosmos, in the literary imagination, of in the literary imagination of do we have an extra great in the literary imagination of Moses he sees a parallel between Genesis 1 and Genesis 12 just as God created the cosmos he's now creating his chosen people and Abraham is not in any way indicated as special And Israel will not be a chosen people because they're so excellent. In fact, as we learn in Deuteronomy and so forth, they're a chosen people because they're weak and small. But God will make them great, and he will use them mightily for the salvation of the world. So the demanding command is one. The blessings are sevenfold. Uh, Again, remember the... In the garden, there was only one tree out of everything that was a no. Everything else was yes. And in a way, this leaving identifies Abraham now as a sojourner, as a foreigner. He's going to keep that status all through his life. 
He's going to be, in a way, a resident alien wherever he is. And he owns that status. That's something that, in this week's study of Genesis, uh, came to me in a, in a sharper way than I had experienced it before, that Abraham embraces that. And I think today, Christians ought to embrace their resident alien status, their chosen exiles. They're not at home in this world. And that's not in any way to diminish the value of this world. Uh, I think new creation perspectives bring us into creation care, into environmental concerns, into that. I don't have a. I don't think we ought to have a lifeboat sort of evangelistic strategy, escaping the world. But Abraham in the world has a distinct identity, and the people of God, God's chosen people, have a distinct identity for the sake of the world, for the culture. Well, so we begin with Genesis 12, but then. Uh, in wrestling with the story of Abraham this week, it can be divided into two ways, and you see it under number B there. Abraham's trials and the Lord God's encounters. And it's just interesting to read, 12 through 25, and there's 14 incidents of trial. And there's 14 encounters and interventions on God's part. I'm going to run through those uh, and try to just sort of tell the story of Abraham. We'll look at the trials. Abraham's exodus from Haran to, Mor uh, to Moray uh, is the first thing that God asks him to do. He complies with that. The second is Abraham and Sarah are in Egypt. You remember the incident in Egypt where Abraham, Abram, still Abram, lies about his wife, who was really his half-sister. Uh, they shared a mother, but not a father. And Sarah is very beautiful. And they go to Egypt, which is uh, in the Ur of Chaldees, where Abraham's family was originally from, is where the Tigris and Euphrates up there, more in the Babylonian area, south in, in Syria. He traveled to Haran, which is further south in Palestine, but then he traveled to the Negev and then to Egypt. So he's really covered from north to south right away, as it were, in the first few years of this sojourn. In Egypt, he lies about his wife. He strategizes how to cope in this cultural situation Sarah is so beautiful, and again, in the legacy of the kind of uh, hierarchy and the kind of leadership and the kind of uh, cutthroat realities that Abraham confronted in Egypt, he's af afraid that he'll just be killed for his wife. And obviously, there were attendants out that would uh, gather up uh, beautiful women for the harem for the pharaoh. Well, that's exactly what happens, and Sarah is taken by the Pharaoh. But then uh, God intervenes. And you see number two, the Lord inflicts plagues on Pharaoh because he's taken his wife. But God doesn't say anything to Abraham in this. 
this intervention is completely uh, unknown to Abraham, Abram, but maybe he interpreted it that God was doing this, but there's no indication of that. The Pharaoh sends Abram off with great wealth as a parting gesture. Pharaoh does say, why did you lie to me? And Abram says, I was fe fearful for my life. And somehow that must, plus the plague, must have impressed the Pharaoh. And he sent him with wealth. Abram is made wealthy by the Pharaoh. Number three, Abraham and Lot separate. You may remember that story. Uh, that's a great Sunday school story. We usually um, impress children with uh, Lot's greediness and Abraham's uh, uh, respectfulness and uh, uh, humility before Lot. One of the interesting thoughts is that uh, Abraham may have hoped that Lot would be like a son, a future, uh, his progeny, uh, his legacy. Lot was the... Uh, son of his brother who died young. And so when uh, Abram left Haran, he left with Lot. And it's likely, I mean, Lot would have been of the age of, of a son to him. Uh, maybe that was part of Abram's hope because it, apparently it was already clear that, uh, uh, that Sarah was uh, not going to uh, be able to have children. Number four, Abraham rescues Lot. Uh, Lot, of course, has gone to this great plain on which the Sodom uh, and Gomorrah are, and uh, and the king of uh, there was a, a battle between the kings, and uh, Abraham rescues Lot by going to battle and um, battling against uh, four kings on behalf of King uh, the king of Sodom. Uh, it's in that incident, in uh, Genesis 14, that Melchizedek blesses Abram. And all of a sudden, you have this strange incident where, uh, having accomplished victory on behalf of King Sodom and his uh, allies, and Abraham is the victor and leads the army of 318 men or something like that into victory, all of a sudden Melchizedek shows up on the scene without any kind of description other than he is the, the king of Jerusalem and he's known for peace. And he blesses Abraham. And Abraham gives him an offering. Now, what seems to be just sort of a blip in the record of incidents becomes in New Testament theology a picture of Christ himself. It's like lifting this out of the Genesis account, uh, the author of Hebrews does, and it's a type of Christ. Without background, without genealogy, Melchizedek is on the scene and he blesses Abraham. And it's a picture as if going forward. I didn't invent that. I mean, the apostles saw that in the Abraham story about Melchizedek. Number five, king of Sodom offers the spoils uh, to Abram, but Abram, number five on the other side, refuses, and the Lord renews his covenant uh, with Abram. Number six, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. 
Again, Abraham was 75 when he left. And after 10 years, Sarah says, basically, you know, let's work on this future generation. And Hagar was a servant that had come with them from Egypt. And she gives Hagar to Abraham with the hope that Abraham will be able to bear children, bear a son. And he does. You wonder in the story if Hagar hadn't despised Sarah, how the story would have gone. But she despised her mistress. She despised Sarah, and Sarah turns against her and sends Hagar and child away. And God hears the cry of Hagar and says, go back to Sarah, which she does. And on one of those renewal of covenants, when Ishmael is 13 years old, he is circumcised right along with Abraham. One wonders if there still was hope that Ishmael might be that progeny, that future generation. And that was Abraham's appeal to God. But God said no. Uh, so he has said no to Lot, as it were, and no to Ishmael. Uh, number seven, host three visitors. Uh, Genesis 18 is a wonderful story of hospitality where Abraham, sitting by the oak of Mambri, sees three strangers. Again, it's, a, it's not a really clear story. It seems obscure because of these three strangers, one is identified as the Lord. And yet, there is no differentiation between the three. Augustine, the early church theologian in the 400s, said he thought that that was a representation of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whatever it is, it's a theophany, and the Lord sits down with Abraham and interacts. And you have sort of this picture of, of Adam and Eve in the garden is now replicated by the Lord sitting down with Abraham and Abraham extending all sorts of hospitality and preparing the meal and rushing around. It's a beautiful, lengthy description. And, you know, this is another thing that's interesting in these stories. There's some great things that happen that's expressed in a verse. And then there's some great things that happen that expressed in a whole chapter. And somehow the whole chapter was dedicated to the hospitality that... Abraham extends to the Lord. And here the Lord says, you know, you, he's, the Lord has this dialogue. The three have a dialogue about, well, should we talk to Abraham about what we're going to do? Which is, I mean, it's just so, it's again, I think, a, a recapitulation of the kind of intimacy that God wants with us and is expressed in the garden. And so that's where Abraham says, well, if, if there are 50 righteous people, Will you still destroy Sodom? And the Lord says, sure. There's 50 righteous people. I won't destroy the city. Well, if there's 40, if there's 30, works it all the way down to 10, and then uh, Abraham stops. Um, and those three then, these, the Lord of the hosts or the angels of the Lord, 
they go to Sodom and have a terrible time. Lot tries to spare them and save them, but the consequences are the destruction of Sodom. Uh, so number eight, the crisis over Sodom, which I've just described. And you have that whole incident. Again, lengthy description of Lot and the incest with his daughters. Number nine, Sarah taken by Abimelech. And again, the same incident now uh, with a Philistine where Abraham fears for his life, so he asks Sarah to say that she is his sister. And it's true, it's a half-truth. She's his half-sister. But in any case, uh, the Lord once again intervenes. I'm going to make an observation about this in a moment. And then number 10, Hagar and Ishmael. And again, the Lord intervenes and rescues Hagar and Ishmael. Number 11, Abraham is tested. And this is the climax of, I think, Abraham's, all of these tests, is that when Abraham is asked to take his one and only son, Isaac, who was born when he was 99. Uh, the original call came when he was 75. Uh, just an aside here on ages. Uh, it sounds fantastic to us that someone would live to be 175, which is Abraham's age. Uh, you know, was it a week ago that um, an American, the oldest American, 116, uh, died? 116 sounds like a pretty, pretty long time, too. And I noticed that there was an article in the New York Times this past week that uh, has been written by, I don't have the details and didn't keep the details, but uh, by a scientist who documents how we have doubled our age from 1918 to, uh, in a couple generations, we were doubling our expected uh, estimate of life. And... uh, and so I think that we have seen swings like this. And who knows what in those early centuries of humanity and the lack of communicable diseases and spread and all and these ages really may be very accurate. So 175 may be the, the real age of uh, Abraham and we don't have a translation problem. I mean, that's always been one of the things in biblical scholarship. Are we really translating the right thing when we say 175? Uh, But it very well may be that we are. The Isaac test is really a beautiful foreshadowing of the cross of Christ. Abraham, knife in hand. I love the way Soren Kierkegaard, the the Danish uh, Christian existentialist, describes the poignancy of real faith as opposed to sort of the abstract conceptualization of faith where we've got it down in ideas, but it's not really in us. It's not shaping our life. It's not transforming us. And Kierkegaard describes the kind of the absurdity of God asking Abraham to sacrifice that long-promised son that God blessed him with, and yet proving in this act of not letting anything stand, 
between uh, faith and obedience to God and taking knife in hand, but then at the last moment being stopped. Uh, and Abraham had said that to Isaac, the Lord will provide. When Isaac questioned, well, we've got the wood, we've got the flint, but we don't have the lamb, we don't have the ram. And Abraham responded by saying, the Lord will provide. And no sooner was his hand stopped, as it were, that he heard the, the sound of a ram in the bush. And uh, I think that, you know, the, the point for us is that uh, Abraham won, his faith in God was proven not to God, but to himself, that absolutely nothing would stand in the way of his obedience to God. And the author of Hebrews says that Abraham believed that he'd bring Isaac back from the dead, trusted God for the resurrection of Isaac. Our Heavenly Father, though, went ahead and sacrificed his one and only son, this triune-inspired uh, redemption on our behalf. Now, what I find interesting is the intervention stopped after the testing of Isaac, and uh, it's kind of—it's not Abraham on his own, but Abraham in kind of what I would call an adult faith. I find it interesting, you know, I, um, I have three adult children uh, that uh, I now kind of take some advice from them. They're mature, they're with the Lord, um, two especially, strongly, and they reflect the wisdom of God. And I feel like there's a, that's what one of the things that came out, I think, in studying these incidents and God's encounters is that Abraham, after the testing of Isaac, is, is kind of there. There in relationship with God. And uh, well, more of that in a moment. Uh, and then Sarah's death and burial. And uh, number 12 on the encounter intervention side, Abraham owns his resident alien status. And if you read through this section, you remember Abraham insisted on buying a burial place for Sarah. Because I am a foreigner, I am a stranger among you. Well, and he really has been for the culture. He hasn't been anti-culture. He hasn't been separatistic. So they say, well, we don't want you to pay for it. We'll give it to you. And he named a place near the Oaks of Mambri. And... Uh, they insisted on giving it to him, and Abraham insisted more uh, until he actually paid out uh, the silver for uh, buying that land and buying the property on which uh, Sarah's, uh, Sarah was buried. Uh, but again, underscoring his resident alien status. And it's interesting that, well, uh, and he've, then uh, I'm interrupting myself. Finding a wife for Isaac, 66 verses. 
I mean, it's by far the longest story in the Genesis narrative. Finding a wife for Isaac. And the whole... Uh, you remember he, he talks to his, uh, to his lead servant to go back to the Earl of Chaldees, back to the original home. But he said, uh, and the, the servant said, but what if, uh, what if she doesn't want to come? Which is like, uh, you think of the most urban, sophisticated center would be the Earl of Chaldees, and you're living in the Negev, and uh, you're wanting to bring back a wife for your uh, your master's uh, son, and your so the servant says, "Well, what if she won't come?" Which is a cultural question here. I mean, it's it's a reality, and uh, and Abraham lets him off the hook. He says, "Okay, you know, you try your hardest, and if she won't come, she won't come. Uh, but whatever you do, don't take Isaac." There, he was really concerned about preserving the integrity of the separateness of the, the sojourner, resident alien status. Um, it's a beautiful story, and Rebecca comes, and uh, but each aspect of that story is unfolded, and then Abraham's death, and who would show up at Abraham's death but both Isaac and Ishmael bury their father. Uh, and uh, Abraham, it's an interesting description of Abraham's will, which everything was left to Isaac, but Abraham had taken pains to divide and to give and to support everybody else in the family, and those, uh, most of those others were sent away. So, again, wanting to preserve the unique status of this chosen people. Well, here's some observations on number C, the shape of Abraham's journey. Number one, the events of Abraham's life form a chiastic structure with circumcision at the center. If you look at it just from a literary standpoint, what is in the center of the story in Genesis 17 is the act of circumcision, where the people, Abraham's future male Generations are identified by a uh, by circumcision, uh, and at the time Abraham circumcised Ishmael, and Isaac would be circumcised on the eighth day. But this identifying mark of the people of God is at the center of the story. You can make of it what you will, but. Uh, that is uh, in that chiastic structure. In other words, chiastic structure means that sort of the beginning of Abraham's life, for example, going to Egypt and lying about Sarah, is then parallel with, in Philistine country, lying to Abimelech that Sarah was his sister. And those kind of parallels so at the beginning and sort of at the end uh, that's what I mean by a chiastic structure. The beginning and the end tend to harmonize, not maybe in Western accuracy, but in that sense of telling the story it does. The beginning and end of Ab um, A of number one, the beginning and the end of Abraham's journey underscore his foreign status. I am a foreigner among you. 
that's the theme of the epistle of First Peter, uh, and I think it's just a really important theme. I've not, uh, I've done a pastoral commentary on First Peter, and boy, I would use Abraham now as an example if I. Um, Understood what I now understand about Abraham's life. Number uh, letter B: Sarah first with the Pharaoh and then with Abimelech show Abraham's inability to save himself by his own means, and the need for God's special intervention to preserve him in his marriage. His future was not to be found in his dead brother's son Lot, nor in Eliezer of Damascus, his servant nor in Hagar's Ishmael, but he had to go through these experiences to understand that his only hope was the promise of God. I don't know how God has unfolded his will uh, for your life, but I think if you look back, you see various uh, stages and experiences uh, which you might not have ever predicted, but had a determinative impact on your life and your relationship with God. Uh, you know, I, there's something about, Calvin says, you know, the Lord could just snap our fingers and we'd know everything we need to know. But that's not how the Lord has chosen to nurture and to develop and to build us up. Not just the snap of the fingers. More on that in a moment. See, along the way, the Lord continued to renew his covenant with Abraham. And this is an underlying theme. This is a uh, mantra that exists throughout this story narrative. God keeps coming to Abraham, and he keeps affirming what his will for his life is. Now, it's stretched over a long period of time. Uh, I've just finished... Uh, Barack Obama's 700-page memoir, which only takes you through his first term. How different that is from Abraham's narrative from 12 to 25. Uh, we Westerners uh, describe long stories in great detail. Uh, the Bible gives us a story, though, uh, uh, not a detailed account. But along the way, the Lord continued to renew his covenant with Abraham. He does it at Haran uh, in chapter 12 at the beginning. He does it at Bethel. And Abraham keeps building altars in response. He does it with Melchizedek's blessing at Mambre. Uh, he does it on a strange night of sacrifices. Wow. Um, when I preach on the call of God, I sometimes use this account of Abraham's... Uh, God told... Abraham to get a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and two different kinds of birds, and cut them in half, and sacrifice them on pyres, and so that you had five animals cut in half, burning, and a deep darkness descends as it's described in Genesis. You picture Abraham there. Uh, with the smoke and the ash and a darkness and all of that happening. And uh, it was a sign of a covenant to walk between the split sacrifices as a sign of, uh, of union with the one making the vow. And uh, Abraham lives through that incident 
which must have been uh, indelibly imprinted on his uh, mind and heart that night. How could you forget that night where God renews his covenant with him? And then, of course, after Isaac's sacrifice, almost sacrifice, the Lord renews his covenant. So number two, Abraham testifies to the difference between being self-made and God-made. So you take all that we've been talking about, and I think this helps to clarify. There is a difference between being a self-made person and a God-made person. And Abraham's life illustrates a God-made person. Even with all of Abraham's uh, foils and weaknesses and poor decisions, uh, in the end, God is faithful, persistent, patient in leading Abraham uh, to a status of God-made. It comes out in various ways, like debating with the king of uh, Sodom. I'm not taking the spoils of war. I don't want you to say, you've made me rich. And kind of an insistence on God's providence and God's work and God's provision in his life. This was evident in his altar building, his oath to the Lord that he would not accept anything from the king of Sodom, his obedience to the command to circumcise, his eager hospitality to the Lord, his laughter and says, you know, both of them laugh at various times when God says, you know, you're going to have a son. And Abraham was the first to laugh. You kind of forget that because you really remember Sarah's laugh in Genesis 18 when they're hosting the what I think is Augustine-like triune God, and Sarah laughs. But I think their laughter is over themselves, not God. Their laughter is, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, not it's not believing that God isn't powerful to work. It's a laughter at themselves, uh, and then the final ultimacy is willingness to sacrifice his one and only son. The difference between self-made and God-made. I'll leave that with you to think about in your own life. The difference between being self-made and God-made. And then three, finally, we are very theory-oriented here in the West. Uh, we tend to live in our heads. Instead of living incarnationally, we are tempted to live excarnationally. Instead of embodied truth in fleshed and forms of character and action, we live in our heads. And Eugene Peterson writes, and I ask my students to sort of respond and reflect on this quote. The way we learn something is more influential than the something that we learn. No content comes into our lives free-floating. It is always embedded in a form of some kind. For the basic and integrative realities of God and faith, the forms must also be basic and integrative. If they are not, the truths themselves will not be will be peripheral and unassimilated. Really, what shapes you? What forms you? What do you understand? What do you stand under? 
in Abraham's life, you, you, this um, travel, this uh, this journey that God leads him on, constantly reminding him he's not at home, but all of this is going to be his, and all of it's going to be his uh, his people. Uh, The way we learn something is more influential than the something we learn. Uh, we're kind of used to here in the West, uh, here's the ten things you need to know. But you just don't get that in the biblical shaping of character. It's just not part of the spiritual formation. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not cognitive, conceptual uh, truths to be affirmed and confessed. But the way you grow into those truths, the way God and faith are formed in you, I think is modeled for us in Abraham's life. Well, that's in a little bit of the story of Abraham. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for blessing us with your word and with the drama of salvation history. Uh, we want to learn, as Abraham did, what it means to follow you, to be obedient to you, to live in covenant relationship with you. Help us this week uh, to be mindful that we really want to be God-made, not self-made. Uh, together we give you thanks. We pray for our church and for your blessing. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.